A reading from the book of Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so this is where we get to a bit of the meat of it in in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I am certainly happy to see everyone in here on um, what you could jokingly refer to as uh, Let Down Sunday. So last Sunday was fantastic. Easter Sunday, right? That's, that's, that's the real deal. That's the day that we get excited for each and every year. You know, we, here even, we had, we had the biggest Easter service that we've had in years. You know, the, the sanctuary was alive. It was full of people. Um, the brunch was absolutely uh, delicious and worthy of the name, brunch. And, and the cross was gorgeous with all of, of the flowers that were on it. And, and people had on their Sunday best. There were lovely dresses. There were jackets and ties and khakis. As far as the eye could see, it, it, was, it was really a fitting celebration for the resurrection of our Lord, right? We, we could say with full hearts and full voices, He is risen. He is risen indeed. But now let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. The long hard work of being and building a congregation in a post-Christendom culture. And I think that this is one of the perennial themes, the the perennial themes, the situation in which the church finds itself in in the 21st century. Being the church in a post-Christendom culture, what do I mean when I say that? 
Christendom being this, this, this word that people used to do to refer to sort of Western Europe as, you know, the land that was itself Christian. And all the people lived in this Christian society and this Christian culture. And it's never been quite the same or in the same way for America. But, but there was a time, I believe, when, when we were a Christendom culture. And when I say post-Christendom, I mean this. I mean, there was a time when Christianity was a dominant culture, cultural, intellectual, and social, and political force in this country. A time when theologians would be put on the cover of Time magazine. A time when millions upon millions of children were educated in church Sunday schools. In fact, before there was a church here on the corner of 35th and Aldrich, it was a Sunday school. A time when churches received the patronage of the rich and powerful. John D. Rockefeller himself. When you go to the Morningside Heights neighborhood of New York City, you you see the Riverside Church that he built with his own money. He said, this is important enough. This means enough to me that I'm going to build a a church that has the tallest uh, steeple, the tallest tower of any church in the country. John D. Rockefeller, the, the, the titan of industry himself, pouring millions of dollars to building this, this beautiful Gothic structure. And we can't imagine Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates doing something like that today. There was a time even when Protestants and Catholics could band together against the motion picture industry to get them to self-censor their films. Even at Aldrich, you could require kids to show up to church on Sunday uh, in order to play basketball in the gym during the week. So these types of arrangements, they were only possible under something like Christendom when the church had power and influence and cachet, when it cast a long shadow over society. And I say this not to pine for the days of yore. Far from it. In many ways, a post-Christendom culture is a much healthier one for Christianity because it keeps us from that far too common mistake of conflating Christ and culture, right? That that, that being a good Christian is the same thing as being a fine, upstanding, middle-class, tax-paying white American. It's good that Christianity is weird again. And we've got to keep it that way. But... And the joke is always, I think, that it's true um, when they talk about the church in a post-Christendom culture and, and how that shift has taken place that I hear people saying sometimes, you know, if 1950 ever comes back, the church is ready. The church is prepared if 1950 ever comes back. And with every joke, there's truth within it. So what it means for a, a church in the post-Christendom context is that it means that we can't just assume... That those of us who follow Jesus, you know, we can't just assume that people are at least vaguely sort of interested in what's going on in here. And that they basically believe what we believe. And so all we have to do to, to grow and have an impact is to just reactivate or reanimate the dormant faith of a nominally Christian population. That's becoming less and less true with each and every year. And what's becoming more and more true is this, and this is really what I want to explore this morning. What's becoming more and more true is this, is the need for the church to have a missionary encounter with our own culture. And this is hugely important, yet we barely ever talk about it. But this was the position developed largely by the late 
and the great missionary churchman, Leslie Newbigin. Uh, his picture is out there in, in the meeting place. It's on the 8-bit wall of theological fame out there. I think he might be the upper right corner. And it's confusing because his name is Leslie. Uh, but, but he's a dude, so, so just don't be confused. And Leslie Newbegin, he, besides being on the 8-bit churchman wall of fame, um, he was sent from England uh, to India to be a missionary in the 1930s. And while he was there, he became an incredibly well-respected scholar of the classical um, Hindu texts, the Vedic texts. He was a renowned scholar within India. And he even helped. He was a founding bishop of the Church of, of South India. And, and later on in his career, he served, he served as the Associate General Secretary of the World Council of Churches. So Newbegin had an impeccable resume when it came to missions and the ecumenical movement and the church in the 20th century. And so he had this storied career that spanned almost four decades. He retired in the middle of the 1970s and returned to a very different England than the one he'd left. And he found when he returned to England 40 years later that, that England itself, and, and he thought the entire West, was no longer Christian in the sense that it had been before. And so his hypothesis, which I think is incontrovertible, is that the West itself had become a mission field, which is a paradigm shift with repercussions for the mission and ministry of the church that I think we're only beginning to grasp. Because when we think of missions, we think of what? Sending people from here to there. Sending missionaries abroad, overseas. And we support several people through the work of this ministry who do that. You can, you, you can read about some of them in, in the annual report. Doug and E.V. Beal serving in Cairo. And the thinking goes like this, that our country is, you know, Christian, so we send people who are Christians to other societies that aren't in order to do good works and win converts, you know, bring them the blessings of the gospel and the benefits of Western civilization. That was explicitly what people said at the beginning of the 20th century. But if you go along with Newbegin and you say our, our own society is no longer Christian, if it ever really was, we could argue that, but... But if it no longer is, doesn't that mean that we need to rethink our understanding of missions and who are missionaries? And that mission isn't something that happens over there, done by a special class of people. But that mission is what happens right here. And so doesn't being a disciple in the 21st century entail some way living as missionaries within our own culture? And so how do we do that? And what does that look like? And how can I be a missionary in my own backyard? These are essential questions that we have to wrestle with. And, and, and we see this happening right in our passage this morning. From the jump, right from Easter. That an encounter with the risen Christ transforms us into people engaged in mission. And that this is question, how we do this, how we live in this way, is going to be the question that should consume us for the next several years, maybe even decades. Because yes, you know, Easter Sunday was, was glorious. And the pews were packed. And as I was with um, some relatives, you know, people were talking about, you know, we had four services, we had five services, we had six services. If you came late, you couldn't even get it. You had to sit close. You couldn't get a good seat. You had to sit near the front, which I thought was funny that people considered a seat near the front not a good seat. That's the best. Dave, you have the best seat in the house right now, in the whole church. You're lucky. So, you know, last Sunday, oh, man, the pageantry, the glory, the full pews. It's good, good for a church's ego. It's good for a pastor's ego, too. But then, you know, the 
harsh reality is that 3,500 churches close their doors each year. And so after the pomp and circumstance of last Sunday, we go, okay, how can we not be lulled into this false sense of security, a sort of lazy triumphalism? Because the Sunday after Easter reminds us that we've got work to do. And so as we now finally dive into our passage, we're going to look at how does it show us what a missionary encounter with our own culture looks like? And second, how does it show us the ways that God equips us and prepares us to do that? All right, so first, what does a missionary encounter with our own culture look like? So a couple weeks ago, um, I infamously attended a lecture at my alma mater, Princeton Theological Seminary. I say infamous because I had to drive home from Philadelphia to get home for church on Sunday. So that was a long drive, and I had a lot of time to think. Um, And so Tim Keller, he's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And so he was giving his answer to this question, what does a missionary encounter look like with Western culture? And the point he made that really resonates with our passage this morning is this. He says that a missionary encounter with our culture looks like pursuing a strategy of subversive fulfillment. I'll explain that in a second. But a missionary encounter with culture looks like pursuing a strategy of subversive fulfillment because that's what the gospel does in every time and every place and every situation and every culture. Subversive fulfillment sounds complicated. So let's break it down. See, what a strategy of subversive fulfillment does is it identifies our core cultural narratives, the primary stories that we tell about ourselves and how the world works and who we are. It takes those and it exposes the idols within them and and it says that these idols can't give you what you really want and it points you to Jesus. And that's just what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are walking and they're talking and they're trying to make sense of everything that has just happened during that past week. How it had gone from a week before, they're entering Jerusalem. Jesus is being hailed as king. They're throwing their coats on the ground. They're singing songs to him. This is it, what they had been hoping for for centuries. It was materializing right in front of their eyes as if from nowhere. But then, like a dream, it was all over. And they were back in, into this really living nightmare. And so Jesus comes up to them, and they don't recognize him. And, and he asks them, well, why, what are you talking about? Why are, why are you so sad? And it says at that moment that they stopped, and Cleopas says, are you the only stranger, the word is foreigner, are you the only foreigner in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened And he goes on to tell them the whole story of what happened to Jesus. But there's one crucial component missing. Resurrection. He says, we went to the tomb. They didn't find him there. And some women said they saw him, but were really not sure what to do. And in fact, he says, we had hoped. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. For those two disciples walking on that road, hope was a past Tense phenomenon. So their dominant core cultural narrative was this. The Messiah would come. He would throw out the Jewish leaders. He would throw out the Romans. You know, he would get his, his hands dirty. Establish a new kingdom. 
just so happened that the people who had been following the Messiah, who had been following Jesus in this case, they would be installed in positions of prominence. Remember, that's what they were arguing about as they walked on the road. Who would get the best seats at the table in the kingdom? So their dominant cultural narrative was the Messiah comes. He, you know, kicks some proverbial tail, installs a new kingdom, and, and, and they get to be in charge. They get to rule. So that's their core cultural narrative. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. Don't you understand that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and enter his glory? And then Jesus opens the scriptures to them and he, and he explains to them, he shows to them what the Messiah had to do. So he took their core cultural narrative about who the Messiah was and he exposed the idols within it, the idols of power and of the thirst for revenge. And he exposes those idols and he uses scripture to show them what God was actually up to all along. That what happened to Jesus was no accident or no tragedy, but was actually a part of God's plan all along. That God was going to move his story forward by taking on Israel and taking on the world's suffering and sin in the person of his anointed one, dying under its weight and rising to new life to begin God's new creation project. Right? The kingdom was coming not by causing sinners to suffer, but by God suffering at the hands of sinners. That Jesus' defeat was actually a part of God's grand cosmic victory. That's subversive fulfillment. You take the core cultural narrative, expose the idols, and show how Jesus gives us what those idols can't. That's just what Jesus is doing on the road to Emmaus, and that's just what he continues to do with us today. We could take one of our core cultural narratives. One I thought of was, you know, the, the sanctity of the choice of the autonomous individual. That the most important thing is making sure that people are free to choose whatever product or, or path or way of life suits them best, irrespective of tradition or anyone else, as long as it's not, you know, directly harming anyone else. So the autonomous individual. And this is a powerful narrative. I saw it time and time again when I was a youth pastor in Ojai, California. One thing I'd often hear, uh, you know, you'd see families in church because, you know, church is good for kids. It gives them some good morals. That's, I think, sort of a basic thing that we, we tell ourselves, which is true. But then when kids turn about 12 or 13 years old, you'd stop seeing them in church. And so you sort of go, why? What, what happened to these kids? They were here every week. And what had happened was they, they weren't forced to come anymore. And the way the parents justified that decision was this. It was very telling. They said they didn't want to impose their beliefs on their kids by making them attend worship. And they wanted their kids to be free to choose their own paths or beliefs, their autonomous individualism, that dominant core cultural narrative in practice. But what was so surprising to me was that they couldn't see that they were imposing their beliefs on their kids. They were imposing upon them their belief in the ultimate significance of autonomous choice. It doesn't matter what you choose. It's just that you have the sense that you are free to choose whatever works best for you. And that's more important than God. And that is making choice, autonomous choice, an idol. And it was funny to me that the, kid, the, the decision that suited the kids' belief system at that time was sleeping in on Sunday mornings. I, I always thought that was a funny coincidence that that just so happened to align with their deepest held convictions and choices at that moment. As it would have for me 
when I was 12 or 13, and then in my teenage years, God, there's nothing like sleeping past 10. And that's my choice, my core conviction. But the gospel of Jesus exposes that cultural idol, and he offers a better way. When we're speaking about true freedom and choice, the gospel says that the truest, the freest choice comes when we choose Christ and his spirit lives in us. And then freedom comes when we're not slaves to our whims, but when we're bound and submitted to seeking Christ and his will. That's what Martin Luther wrote about in his famous little treatise, The Bondage of the Will. He said, we're all slaves to something. So we're either slaves to our sinful nature or we're slaves to Jesus. And he says, one is freedom and the other is not. One is idolatry and the other is not. The other is what actually brings an individual true freedom. It's why St. Paul says it is for freedom freedom that Christ has set you free. All right, so that's the first point I want to make that, that... That when we see Jesus on the road to Emmaus, what we see him doing is making sense of where our core cultural narratives fail us and they leave us short. And that having a missionary encounter with our own culture means doing that same thing. Letting Jesus identify those core narratives and and, and then bringing them into contact with him, his power, his story, his presence. The risen Christ meet those and, 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 and he overturns them. He fulfills them. He surpasses them. But then the question is, the last question is, how do we do this? What does this look like? This sort of sounds complicated. Like it's something that's best left to, um, you know, uh, theologians or maybe a class of super Christians who can work this out for everyone else. All right, you you tell me you want me to be a missionary in a post-Christendom culture. That's a, a lot of jargon I even have to learn. So how am I supposed to do this? But the truth is this. We, we, we see in our passage this morning how this transformation takes place from someone just walking down the road into a missionary takes place jesus sets the pattern that continues to this day and if you want to know how we're equipped to be missionaries in our own culture jesus shows us right here and it's as easy as this do do you ever wonder you ever stop and think why do we worship the way we worship why do we sing the songs and pray the prayers and we read a Bible, and then a person gets up and talks for 20 minutes, and then we go to this table each and every week. Like, why do we do that other than someone did it before, so we're just continuing it on? And my simple answer is this, and, and the way we can think about it is this. We worship the way we do because that's the way that God forms us into his missionary people. And the two things that are at the heart of our service each and every week are the word and the sacrament. And so the Bible and the table are the things we do every week to prepare us to bring Jesus with us out into the world because these are what Jesus used to turn Cleopas and the other disciple from disappointment, sadness, and confusion to missionaries themselves. And so they're walking on the road. They're confused. They don't understand what God is up to in the world. And so Jesus opens the scriptures to them and tells them God's story and how it climaxes in Jesus. So there's the word right there. We meet the risen Christ by studying and reflecting on God's word in scripture. But it's not just about the word. And this is where Protestants sort of get into all kinds of trouble and they lose the plot. Because we take this approach that what matters most is we just have to get the right information into people's heads. And once we've done that, we've completed the job. But what's fascinating about this passage is that it wasn't when Jesus read the scriptures to them that they recognized him. He was still incognito. He still sort of had to play like he was going further down the road and then, you know, uh, work his way into an invitation into the home. It, it wasn't 
when he, he explained scripture to them. And they even said, weren't our hearts burning as he explained it to us? And, and so something profound was happening, but they still didn't recognize him. So when they recognized him was the moment when Jesus broke bread with them. Luke writes, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Does that sound like something? It sounds like the Lord's Supper. And so in our worship, we bring the word and we bring the sacrament together and our eyes are opened. We encounter the risen Jesus. He's not gone, but he's still right here with us. And when that happens and their eyes are open and they recognize him, what do they do? They had just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's the end of the day. The day is over. They turn around and go seven miles back because they've got to tell someone. An encounter with the risen Jesus in word and sacrament turns them from just a couple of confused people trying and failing to make sense of the world and it changes them into missionaries. And that's why we worship the way we worship and that is my goal and my hope for us going forward is that we can consciously understand that's part, at least part of what God is doing as we gather each and every week at word and table. That our worship is bringing us face to face with the risen Jesus and that is equipping us to be his missionary people in this time and place. So post-Easter, this Sunday where we're trying to make sense of everything that just happened last week and where it is we're supposed to go moving forward. And in fact, the interesting thing about Emmaus, the town of Emmaus, is we don't even know where it is. It's lost to history. It's not on any map. We can't go and find it anymore. And I think that's very telling. Before they met the risen Jesus, they just were going somewhere. Where they had no idea. And when they meet Jesus, he provides them with purpose. A mission. And so it's through an encounter with the risen Jesus that we are transformed into a missionary people within our own culture. A missionary encounter where God shows us where our dominant cultural narratives break down and he replaces them with one saturated and shaped by Jesus himself. And the way God prepares us to be that people is to gather us each and every week to do the same thing over and over again, to hear God's word and eat God's supper because that is our job training for living as ambassadors of the resurrection, agents of the new creation. And so what do I believe God's word is for us today? Embrace his call. To be a missionary people shaped, informed, and fueled by God's word and sacrament. To be agents of real resurrection hope. In our own culture. That's our mission. That's our message. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.